Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey, listeners, thanks so much for joining me today. I know you have lots of other things you can be doing, but I appreciate your time and tuning in. I have a really amazing guest today, Dr. Colleen Kraft, and she is the Senior Medical Director for Clinical Adoption at Cognoa, a digital medical device company designing products to address the unmet developmental and behavioral health needs for children. Dr. Kraft served as the 2018 president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and her background includes work in primary care pediatrics, pediatric education, and healthcare financing. Dr. Kraft received her undergraduate degree at Virginia Tech and her MD from Virginia Commonwealth University. She received her MBA from the University of Cincinnati and completed her residency in pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. Through her work, Dr. Kraft's goals are to promote the optimal physical, developmental, and psychosocial health of all children, and to support those adults and professionals who care for all children. That's us, and she is just a huge proponent and advocate for pediatricians and all the work that we can do on behalf of kids. So sit back and be inspired. Hi, Colleen. How are you? Hi, Leah. I'm doing great. It's great to have a chance to talk with you today. Oh, I'm so delighted. You are an incredibly busy person, and I appreciate you taking some time out to speak with me and listeners. So I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks again. Glad to be here. So I just want to welcome you to the podcast. And then I always like to start off with a little bit about your journey into pediatrics. So maybe you can share just a little bit about your story. Absolutely. Well, I have now been a pediatrician. As of yesterday, I've been a pediatrician for 34 years, and that's after residency. I started out my pediatric journey as a child and in a family that was eligible for this program that started in 1965, where they took poor kids and actually got them ready for kindergarten. That program was called Head Start, and I was in the very first year of that. And yes, so it was a summer program. And it was designed to get kids from poor families ready for school. And I was the oldest of, at the time, four kids and was used to reading to them, which as means take a book and when to turn the pages and things. But I actually learned to read early. And my head start teacher told me that I was smart enough to be a doctor when I grew up. And that stuck. I thought, okay, that's what I got to be. So as I went through college and medical school, pediatrics is really the place that that drew me in. And it was the kids, it was the families, it was the whole idea that you could develop health in children. And I finished my residency, which is the three years after medical school where you train as a pediatrician. And at the time when I finished, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and was pregnant. And so I decided to do community pediatrics and to work part-time and spend that the other time with my children, which was something I will never regret. But the thing that I learned that was so important was that as a pediatrician, you 
can be involved in so many places where kids' health happens outside of the office. And that sometimes your involvement outside of the office is more important than your involvement inside of the office. So the first thing I took on was was child care because I couldn't find child care for my kids. That was really high quality. And so I worked with a center to help build the quality and learned about some of these really wonderful child care workers, many of whom were making $5 an hour. Their own kids were not, they were able to afford this child care center. So their own kids were being taken care of by grandparents or other family members and learned that people want the right information and people will trust a pediatrician to help bring them along in that journey. So from there, I worked in private practice. I started a pediatric residency training program at Virginia Tech and eventually became president of the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2018. Well, and that's where our paths crossed. And right. um, it just goes to show you that there are many paths in pediatrics. And I love, I mean, you're clearly an advocate from the get-go. So ad- I so admire you and all the work you're doing. But but then it, so you finished the AAP president role, which I know was incredibly whew, jam-packed. I don't know. Every year seems to have its own challenges. I mean, our most recent presidents have had to deal with the pandemic and political issues. And But a big one that fell on your plate was immigrant care. And I just remember you being on, I don't know, some national show and you were just such grace under fire. So I thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. It's important to be able to reframe what's out there in the media as how do we think about children? How do we think about families? And how do we think about the best solutions moving forward? And it was a great way to to frame it. And I guess that brings me to sort of this international stage and your involvement with some of the things going on at the World Health Organization. So maybe you can just give listeners a little bit of a flavor about what you're doing there, and then we'll kind of take us right into today's topic. Absolutely. This has really been in the whole piece of refugee and migrant health for children. What we know is that we have more displaced children and families than in the last 20 years easily. And it's because of war and violence in home countries. Now, in the United States, we're seeing a lot of this happen from Central America coming northward. And where I live now in Los Angeles, we take care of a lot of these children in our clinic and in our federally qualified health center. But if you look around the world, one out of every, I think, four people living in Turkey are Syrian refugees or refugees now coming from Ukraine and Russia. So the whole idea with how do we take the these folks coming from other countries and really bring them into the whole culture of the new nation. How do we take advantage of the teachers and nurses and doctors and carpenters and craftsmen who have become refugees and welcome them into our countries, assimilate their children, and then take care of some of the very nitty gritty parts of child health that we come into? Yeah, well, that's a that's a big worldview. I love that the culture of the new nation and the idea, the idea of the open door versus a big wall, which, when I mean, who gets caught in the crossfires of all that are our kids, and I think we just can't lose sight of that. And when there's such, oh my gosh, such warfare over who belongs and who doesn't, and I mean, how do you turn away a child? Right. 
The other area that I've been working in since AAP time has really been looking at pediatric innovations and particularly in the area of digital technology because there's so much technology that's being invented and used in the adult world. But what about kids? And particularly where we're seeing the big gap, which is in developmental services and behavioral health. So much of what I'm doing is working with tech companies to help them understand the pathway by which these innovations could be used in a pediatric practice setting or in a school or a child care setting. And how do we do this so it is the right technology for the right children and the right families and bring this into something that's going to help all of us understand and actually treat kids with developmental and behavioral disabilities. I love this. And it just segued from, I, I just finished a podcast with a therapist who's using virtual reality therapy for phobias. And I mean, I was fascinated. So yeah, there's just like a whole new world out there. And I think, first of all, I just totally respect you. And I, I also think it you're such an example to pediatricians, like that there's many roles for us in the world. I mean, I think we all think about the one-on-one care we provide to patients and families, but, you know, there, there are many paths and many places where we can represent kids. And you being in pediatric devices and therapies and in the World Health Organization, I mean, what don't you do? Thank you so much. It really is just an extension of what I mentioned at the very beginning in that what we do for kids really to extend it outside our offices is sometimes more important than what we do in our offices. Yeah, well, especially like World Health Organization. I mean, there's a big view. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what you've worked on with the nurturing care framework. And what's the big view? What does that mean? So the nurturing care framework is an idea of looking at how do we understand the building blocks of child development? Because child development is complex and it's really a dance between your genetics and your epigenetics, which is the environment around where your body grows and develops. And children are dynamic. You're treating a different child every day because their brain is growing, their body is growing, and understanding what their genetics are with their environment really helps to put us down the path of what's best for kids. So what the Nurture and Care Framework does, and this is promoted by the World Health Organization as well as UNICEF, it's a way to think about how do we promote early childhood development. There are five aspects and important parts of the Nurture and Care Framework. One of them is adequate nutrition, really good nutrition. And of course, that changes if you are in an area where there's a lot of food scarcity, then you're looking at malnutrition in terms of fewer calories and fewer protein, and less good nutrition. If you're in the United States and you have food insecurity, you're more likely to have obesity and overnutrition and the wrong types of food. So nutrition is one one plane. A responsive caring adult is something that's really important. And we know that children's brains thrive upon interaction with an adult. And it's talking and singing and reading. And that interaction, that serve and return that really builds early relational health. Good health. Children need to be healthy to grow and they need to be healthy to develop normally. Their brains need that to develop normally too. So that means being free of diseases, 
It means having good nutrition. It means just overall not having sick days. The fourth piece is safety and security. Children need to know that they're in a safe environment, that they're in safe relationships, that those caregivers that they love and depend on will be there. And then finally is opportunities for early learning. Children are naturally curious, and the way that they learn is by discovering and by playing and by getting outside and by manipulating things and by interacting as opposed to one of the big threats during the pandemic, which was so much screen time, which is so past. Right. Well, I love kind of those categories and my brain is firing up because I'm like, oh, I've had other guests that have talked about some of these specific things like food insecurity with Kofi Essel. So if any of the listeners are interested in some of these other podcasts, please scroll through. But I thought we could break it down and talk a little bit more about the pandemic interrupted our lives so much, both the kids and the parents and businesses. I mean, just everything. And it's not over. I mean, I just heard a thing on the news. It's heading back up and, oh, that we wish that this was over. But let's talk about some of those things a little bit more in detail because I think they're also important. So can you talk a little bit about safety and security and how was that for kids with the pandemic's effect on adults? So this is a great discussion. This is about what did the pandemic do to disrupt those pillars of the nurturing care framework. So let's talk about safety and security. This is something that we saw in many of our families when adults around children were dying and experiencing severe illness. That sense of safety and security in children was really disrupted during the pandemic. And unfortunately, it was much more pronounced on our more vulnerable populations. So in the clinic that I worked in Los Angeles, which is part of a federally qualified health center, I had one night where I had four children who had lost a parent to COVID. And they came in for cough and runny nose and fever and your typical kid things. But over overlying that was the whole idea that they had just lost a parent. And these were parents who were in their 30s and 40s and most of them reasonably healthy people. That just shakes up that child's sense of security. First of all, they've got the loss of the parent and somebody that they love. Secondly, what does that mean about where I'm going to live and who's going to take care of me and what's going to happen when I'm upset about something? And even who's taking me to this doctor's visit? So in all four of these instances, there were other relatives bringing the child in. But with a loved one gone, that sense of safety and security was really, really disrupted. The other thing that we saw during the pandemic were the children whose families were intact, but they had a friend or they had a colleague who lost a parent or lost a grandparent or lost family members, was that they sensed the anxiety that these other kids had. And that anxiety often displaced the interactive and secure bonding that they had with their parents and their caregivers because they wondered what was going to happen to their parent. Their friend lost their parent. Their friend lost their grandparent. Is that going to happen to me too? And as we think about the fact that we know that anxiety and depression really increased during the pandemic, this was a big cause. Even if nobody died in your family, you were exposed to other kids where that happened. And that caused that anxiety. This huge ripple effect. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. 
And wasn't it, I'm, maybe I'm getting the numbers wrong, but I want to say, is it like 150,000 kids that lost a parent or a primary caregiver? Is that, does that sound right? I, I think that's actually a conservative estimate of the number of children who lost a parent or caregiver. So one of the other things that happened with regard to safety and security was housing insecurity. And of course, one of the things that we talked about during the pandemic was that you weren't able to evict families, but in reality, it happened. I mean, it, it happened sometimes because the person who was responsible for working and getting an income to pay the rent was the one who died. And then what happened with that family? And so a lot of our kids moved in with other family members. A lot of our kids wound up having to go to shelters while they figured out where they were going to live. And so housing insecurity was a big problem during the pandemic. And I even wonder about some of the things that talked about increasing child abuse and domestic violence that kids witness because we're all thrown together and a volatile situation is now on fire. Absolutely. And on top of that, where you used to be able to go out and do things during night, certainly during 2020, we were telling families to stay indoors and maybe go out for a few minutes and play, but don't go to other places, don't be with other children. And that just added to a lot of the stress that was going on with these kids and really impacted their sense of safety and security. Well, and the people that could see that maybe something was on, like the teacher that could kind of keep tabs on a kid, we lost that. And that was a, a another set of eyes, if you will. Absolutely. Part of the safety net that we have for kids is child care, preschool, and school. Because again, when you look at that responsive and caring adult, that's where kids interact with them in person. And that was not something that we were able to continue doing during the height of the pandemic. And aside from, so there's the safety kind of disruption of your environment. And then there was the whole health effects of COVID. I mean, of course, there was illness. And I think that there was this idea that somehow kids didn't get it. And if they did get it, which was would be rare, that they didn't get sick. And then, of course, we know that there were kids who died that contracted long COVID, Miss C, all these things, sick, hospitalized, out of school because of quarantine. But what about other impacts on healthcare, like access to care for kind of regular stuff? This was something that we saw a big problem with during the pandemic because many families were afraid to go to health centers because that's where sick people were. And so they didn't seek out health services for their children. So screening for developmental concerns or lead poisoning for anemia, these things were delayed or not done. Immunizations, I think on estimate about 50% of children got behind on immunizations during the pandemic. And this is even with many of our pediatricians and family physicians doing things like having drive-up services where a child could come into a tent and have their immunizations done and not actually have to go into a facility. Even with that, families were scared. And so the kids didn't come in. One of the things we're seeing now in our offices particularly with developmental concerns, are kids who would normally have been screened for autism or other neurodevelopmental disabilities as toddlers now coming in as three and four-year-olds, having missed that screening, having missed that window of opportunity for diagnosis and very early therapy. And we're having to backtrack a lot with these families now. Well, and then there were the kids that were diagnosed receiving services through school or home ABA, and that was all disrupted. So Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that was really problematic because a lot of therapy went to virtual therapy. And what we know now and understand now is that there are some kids with some diagnoses who actually do very well with virtual therapy. But, you know, a two-year-old with no speech trying to do something on Zoom was really pretty ineffective. And those kids lost time, even though we knew that they needed services. And then there's the adults like me who had to muddle through how to do Zoom too. <laughs> and But I got lots of help. So yeah. And I just feel for those families. I mean, I think about, you know, the parents are trying to work. The kids are home from school. So now they're supposed to be the teachers. I mean, I just feel for those families that had young kids and how on earth they could make that work. And that really comes into the whole responsive caring adult part of the nurturing care framework and how that got disrupted. Responsive caring adults, we all want to be that to our young children, but we get distracted with things like work and other responsibilities that we have to do within the home. And this was particularly important during the pandemic and particularly for mothers, because they were often tasked with working from home, also carrying the responsibility of teaching for their school-aged children, and then caring for their preschool-aged children. And that increased labor and stress. It resulted in less time with the younger children and stressful interactions when these did occur. So what wound up happening was many preschool-aged children spent a lot more time on screens than they did before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and that's such a such a thing and such a loss and it makes me wonder about sort of the cognitive losses. I was chatting with a teacher recently who teaches 7th grade math and she just said, "These kids come in, I'm supposed to teach 7th grade math. They missed all of 6th grade and yet I'm supposed to do that." So, were there some cognitive deficits that occurred as a result of the pandemic? So this is really important in another piece of the nurturing care framework, which is the opportunities for early learning. So if we ratchet this back down to the young children, that early learning has its roots in social emotional bonding with adults. And when you have problems with that caring parent who is distracted by so much and stressed out by so much, then kids don't interact to develop the speech and the language and some of the nonverbal social cues burn-taking, common etiquette, please and thank you, and some of those self-regulation skills. For the older kids, they often didn't get the really rich academic teaching that happens in the classroom. And very interestingly, we actually saw a little bit of a dichotomy with this. So I have some kids who actually did better during the pandemic with virtual learning because they weren't distracted by their peers, because this was the way that they learned better. But I would say the vast majority had much more trouble with learning on a Zoom screen because it's tough to pay attention. It's tough to get the concepts. And they really missed a lot of the nonverbal cues and some of the social emotional bonding that happens with learning. Well, and I just think how hard it is to pay attention to a screen. I mean, you and I have attended many conferences and meetings on Zoom. And after about an hour, it's hard to stay engaged. And we're grownups with skills, right? And and I'm wondering, I think there's been so much attention about mental health and the effects. And part of it is having done pediatrics for a long time. I mean, mental health concerns have been there for a long time. It wasn't new, but I think they've gotten heightened maybe because, you know, these kids were kind of holed up. And so 
you're talking about a young kid who's frustrated. I mean, a tantrum might seem like a good idea or a kid who's so isolated that it feeds into their anxiety. Will I, will this ever change or their depression that what's the point? Absolutely right. It, 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 and what our researchers have found is that in addition to this, the cognitive and motor development of skills of children who are younger really suffered because kids were not out riding their bikes and playing and climbing trees and doing those active things that they needed to do. We actually saw and are seeing some of the results of this with our older kids, with our teenagers, particularly those who were involved in athletics. Many of them really got deconditioned during the pandemic. And so they've gone back to try to play soccer or softball or basketball at the same level that they did in 2019. And they're not in shape. They're not conditioned. And they're feeling very badly about this. And I think what we wind up having to do as a society is somewhat of a reset where you may have been a really elite athlete and we've got to go back to basic conditioning again. You might have been a superb student, but you lost something during these last couple of years in learning. We've got to go back to some of our basics and make sure we understand these concepts and not be so focused on passing that next standardized test for seventh graders. It's almost like we have to offer grace. And I think pediatricians are all, we're all about hope. We're all about not the lost opportunities, but the resilience. So, I mean, can kids catch up and how do we dig out of this? I mean, how do we help them as pediatricians, pediatric clinicians, teachers, therapists? What do we, what's our responsibility now? I think at this point, our responsibility is really starting again with the basics. Understand that resilience is built on relationships. And first and foremost, it's connection with that one parent or grandparent or teacher or coach or consistent caring adult that can provide that solid platform for social development. And for them, understanding where our kids are and really for a while, cutting back on some of those standards to really look at what are we doing in that interaction and in that learning. One of the things I think we learned a lot about with school during the pandemic is that we did a lot of testing and we were so focused on the testing and the test results that maybe we didn't focus enough on the learning and the basic principles in school and knowledge. And maybe we need to, to remind ourselves that is where that knowledge begins. It begins in the context of our relationship. It begins in understanding basic concepts. It begins on one success and building on that one success for children. So it sounds to me like you said sort of before, and I think worth reiterating is a societal reset. Like this pandemic happened to all of us and we all felt it in lots of different ways. But for our kids to maintain the same expectations is not fair. And we need to kind of rethink that what's most important. And I think one of the first things you mentioned is about this sense of security and safety. I mean, I think that first and foremost is our job as adults to be, you're safe and I'm here. That's my job. I feel like as a pediatrician, out of having come out of a family that didn't feel safe, that became my drive to help other kids and other parents create safe environments for children. Not that you can't be resilient because you can be a pediatrician and come out of that, but, you know, it carries its burdens and giving kids a chance to catch up 
is, I think, really important as pediatric clinicians. So in a pediatric office, we have a family that comes in, a parent that's there with a child. What do we do to help that parent understand? I mean, what's something we can do? So so think about it this way. COVID was a fire that burned our house down. And some people, it burned some rooms and not others. Some people, it just leveled the whole house. Some places, there was a little bit of smoke damage, but the house was there and intact. I think that what we wind up doing is reinforcing that the very first thing that you do with that house is is really not as much as sensing the damage as it is looking to see where your strengths are. So if you if it was burnt to the ground and your foundation is still good, that's where you start. If it's smoke inhalation and damage to certain parts there, but you've got all four walls and you've got a functioning bathroom and kitchen, that's where you start. So the same thing with our families. Think about it this way. If you have a child who you didn't lose a parent, you didn't lose family during the pandemic, but you had some real losses in terms of school and in learning, start with the fact that you are intact and that you still can have a good time and a positive relationship with your child. And then think about what are your goals in terms of the next month, in terms of the next three months. And it may be revisiting what happens with our reading or reviewing some of our math skills and let's see where we are and where we need to go. I think the way that schools could really be helpful here is if you think about testing, doing it as an assessment for an individual child as well as a group of children And really based on where they are, let's do that reset and start with some of those basic skills. How do we start to use them again? A lot of review. Some Someone has a success in that they have relearned their multiplication tables. Great. Then let's build on that. Somebody has a success on that they've learned how to do subtraction with a, a bigger number under a smaller number. Great. Let's start there. But I think that understanding what are the pieces of that house that are still intact, building on the strengths there. And then assessing where we need to reset and start again is going to be something that will be reassuring for all of our kids. It will definitely decrease anxiety because they know that responsive adult is understanding where they're at and they want them to be successful. And I think as a society, will help us move forward. I love that. Leave it to a pediatrician to find strengths. (laughs) Uh, That's, I mean, it's just a beautiful way to put that, the idea that Yes, there were losses and I'm so sorry that happened to you, but let's, but here you are today and how can I help? I like the idea of tests not being like, how smart are you? How good or bad are you? But rather, where are you now? Just, it's like a marker so that I know what I can do. What's my responsibility to help you thrive? And that's a very different message to families. I mean, first of all, I think or primarily, it's hope. We can do something about this. There is, there's lots of reasons for hope. And I think that's the joy of pediatrics. Absolutely. And with regard to education, I think one of the opportunities we have here is something that we have missed for probably the last decade or so. And that is recognizing the strengths of our children and helping to promote their skills based on their strengths and things that they want to do. There's been so much push for academic achievement. And I think in our schools, we haven't had the space for vocational achievements, for learning those carpentry skills or automotive mechanics or plumbers or electricians or welders. And 
we have kids who really will find their strength there. And we need them to build our society. We need them to really think about how we build housing, how we address some of the things that were lost during the pandemic. And a good electrician or plumber, in my mind, is just as important as a good doctor. Well, and and they can also make a really good living doing those careers. And I think the other thing, it's a message to adults that we value you. We value all members of our society because maybe I teach philosophy, but I need someone to fix my car and I need someone to build my home. And I can't do all of that. That's not my skill set. So how do we value everyone's skill set? Because it takes it takes a village and it takes all the villagers. Absolutely right. And perhaps with that reset in education, we can start to to prioritize some of these skills as well, too, and really understand that they're just as important as people who are much more book learning, academic achieving. Well, and I'm wondering, that sounds like a point for pediatric advocacy with schools because, hey, we've got a lot of sway, right? Our voices are heard. Those of us who serve on school boards, those of us who advise teachers, some those of us who work with kids who've got individualized education plans and really can make some very concrete recommendations can really help to with that influence and can maybe help with some new ideas. Right. Well, I love that the those pieces of advice, because I think, again, it fosters the idea that we can rise from the ashes. We can brush the smoke away, find ways to thrive. So I like to end my conversations with physicians to ask them, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a resident, what would it have been? My advice to myself as a resident, and I know this now, is that your career as you finish your residency is not going to be your career for the rest of your life and moving forward. Because life events will change what you find is important. Where you are successful will change what you do as a living and that it's all good. You can go from private practice to academic or academics to a private practice or to industry and innovation or to nonprofit work. That your voice as a pediatrician means that more than 99.9% of people about child health and that your voice will be heard wherever it is that you choose to do and be and work. I think the second thing I would tell myself as a resident is that always be involved in an organization or with a group of people outside your office. It could be one place. It could be a child care center. It could be a school. It could be a playground committee. Be involved in one place because your voice needs to be heard in those areas and that you will be very much respected and honored and people will learn from you and they'll appreciate what you have to say and you will learn from them and understand a place that you would not have known beforehand. Well, and I think it's important to not discount. Maybe you're a pediatrician in a small rural community. Don't discount your impact because you can put forward ideas. You can, through the AAP, you can join chapters. You can be on committees. You can be AAP president. So you can move the world through different organizations just by virtue of you being you. I would totally agree with you. When I started in practice, I started with two young kids and pregnant. I started part-time and did call every six night, worked two days a week. And back then it was considered the mommy track. So you somehow 
didn't, he didn't really fit in with a whole group of practicing pediatricians and maybe some man should have taken your place. I mean, that there was a lot of it went on back in the late eighties. And I think that really reframing that to where do you work outside the office to take care of kids and to make this environment a better place for kids was something that, that became my strength. And I think really inspired a generation of pediatricians to know that their work outside the office and even in parenting their own young children is something that makes you better, a better pediatrician. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, listen, Colleen, I just want to thank you. I mean, I think you have been an inspiration to many pediatricians and appreciate your kindness and your, just your grace and thank you for everything that you've done. And I'm so grateful that you spent some time with me today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And again, thank you for the invitation and best of you moving forward. Absolutely. Take care. I love these topics that are such kind of big overviews of world policy and advocacy that affect children's lives, but also then bring it home to what we can do in our offices in the real world. So here are my takeaways. Number one, a huge thank you to Dr. Colleen Kraft, who's a really inspiring pediatrician advocate and leader. She was the past AAP president and is a champion for technologic innovation, refugee and immigrant child health, and for child development and its critical stages. And again, I am so grateful that she was able to spend some time with us. Number two, the World Health Organization and UNICEF created the Nurturing Care Framework to guide and support healthy child growth and development. Number three. The pillars of the Nurturing Care Framework include adequate nutrition, good health, safety and security, responsive caregiving, and early childhood learning opportunities. Number four, COVID was the great disruptor. And let's start with safety and security as one of the pillars because parents are dying. Parent and family illness is throwing a wrench in the works. There's been loss of housing job loss, and we all know that child abuse and neglect and domestic violence really increased, and that was also destabilizing for children. Number five, good health. That seems like so simplistic, and it's everything that we do, but kids didn't get to see us. Illnesses and especially chronic conditions were not attended to, not because parents didn't care, but because they were afraid to bring their kids in to see us. Immunization rates dropped by some estimates up to 50%. Screening fell by the wayside for things as simple as hemoglobin and lead, and developmental delays were missed. Number six, what about adequate nutrition? This translates into food insecurity, under and over nutrition, and I would refer you back to Dr. Kofi Essel's episode on food insecurity back at the beginning of the year in 2022 for an excellent description of food insecurity and how you can be looking for that in your practices. Number seven, educational opportunities missed. There was loss of early education and intervention, contact with teachers and other students were missed, and then there was the loss of access to the richness of the academic environment. Even extracurriculars like sports resulted in problems like deconditioned athletes. So many losses. Number eight, responsive adults and caregiving. 
we were challenged to and distracted by all the other demands. We were isolated. Costs soared and still are soaring. Job loss affected our access to so many things. And many parents had to be teachers, workers, and then caregivers for young children or elderly family. So it's hard to respond to the needs of your child when you're just hanging on by a thread. Number nine, how do we dig out? Dr. Kraft shared this beautiful analogy and metaphor of a house on fire. But the question she asked was not where were the damages, but where were the strengths? Did it burn to the ground? Maybe there was still a foundation. Were a couple of rooms damaged? What about the rest of the house? Was there smoke damage? We can clean that up. And then she looked for the opportunities. Number 10, time for a reset. Maybe education, the way we do that needs to change. It's not just about testing and sending kids to college. There are so many vocational opportunities for kids, and we need those folks that are experts in building, plumbing, electricians, car repair, all the things that make our society so rich, and we just can't do without them. But we need to encourage kids to seek out where their strengths lie. And education has to support that. It really is a mindset change. Number 11, work from where the child is right now. What do they need to succeed now and move forward? If there were losses in education, they missed out on a whole year of mathematics. Okay, where are they now? What did they retain? And how do we bring them back? Number 12, we can shift the focus to the possibilities for each child and family and offer hope. And we can do that in our offices every day. Number 13, I loved Dr. Kraft's advice. Your career as a resident will not be your forever career. And get involved in organizations outside your office. That may be, in fact, where you can make the most impact. And we all can find our place in our communities and our states and nationally. So many opportunities. Number 14, don't forget that you, each of you, are child experts and that your voice matters. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. Please rate and review. I love to hear from you. And if you have ideas about other podcast topics or even a guest, please send your information to me. You can DM me at Pediatric Meltdown on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino. And you can contact me as well at Gugino L at medicalbhs.com. Thanks so much and keep enjoying this beautiful summer. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.